Hi, I'm Ali. And I'm Penny, and you're listening to Not Too Busy to Write. The podcast about writing, publishing, and creativity amongst life's many other demands. This week on the podcast, we have our very own Ali Miller, author of The Last Days, which is out today. Ali, welcome to your own show. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me, Penny. It's amazing (laughs) to be on. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) Finally, uh, with the book coming out, we can have a proper dive into The Last Days, to the experience of writing it, to the book itself. Um, It's so exciting that we can talk about it freely because I know we've we've sort of touched on it a little bit in episodes that we've done together, but we haven't been free to talk about it, and now we are. So I would love to start with the end. So in the author's note at the end, you said, in the end, writing this wasn't a choice but a necessity. Yes. Um, Yeah, it was a necessity. So I'd been raised to believe that you tell the truth. And if you don't tell the truth about something, it's a sin for you. And I realised that I knew a lot of things about an organisation that I believed to be very dangerous, possibly corrupt. And I couldn't keep that to myself. I didn't want to have to write about it for a very long time. I went around in circles as to whether I would. I had a lot of sleepless nights. I had a lot of sleepless nights after I submitted uh the early draft to my agent it it wasn't an easy choice to make but it really was a necessity and it's one that I'm really pleased I've done. So let's talk about the book itself and the structure just so the listener can get a bit of an idea. Um, it begins in your childhood and it goes through to um, essentially when you broke away from that community fully um, and it's in three it's in three major parts. Do you want to just talk us through the structure a little bit? Yeah, I got really obsessed with structure. Um, I always knew from very early on that I wanted it to be Genesis, Exodus and Revelation. Uh, Genesis deals with all the early parts of my childhood up until the point at which I become baptised so that I officially become a Jehovah's Witness. They don't believe in infant baptism. I was 17 when I got baptised. And then it moves into Exodus and Exodus is the part where I begin to start having doubts and start to kind of move away from the religion. But I also move back to it as well. It wasn't an easy thing for me to leave. So there's the kind of one section is called retreat and return. There's that kind of moving away and then coming back. And then revelation is everything that happens afterwards. So it's almost like the aftermath. Originally that had been going to be a more kind of hard hitting nonfiction but I kept that for the author's note and I'm also keeping it for things that I'd like to work on in the future as well. I got quite obsessed with structure um, last May. So I met my editor and we met for coffee and I'd submitted what we both thought was going to be the final draft. And we sat there and we looked at each other and we said, oh, it's, it's a good book. And we sort of nodded. And she said, yeah, it's a good book. I said, oh, it's a good book. But we didn't have anything else to say about it. Mm. We weren't like, oh, my God, it's an exciting book or look what we've done or that we'd achieved something that either of us felt was particularly, you know, incredible. And then we started to talk and we spoke for hours that day it was a really rainy day and we just talked and talked and talked and I'm a big believer that a book gets talked out of you as well so we spoke and spoke and spoke and Robin said to me look you know what just 
basically do what you want. <laughs> there was a lot that I told her about my life that hadn't made its way into the book as well. And I realised that I was trying to make myself sound more devout than I'd been. So I'd kind of taken away the complexity of leaving and, and how doubts work. So she said, you know, just go away, do what you like. And at that stage, I really explored the potential of the structure. Mm. So I'd always known that it was three parts and that this was how it was going to work. The Exodus part, I started to really explore. So Exodus is actually split into two parts. And then in the middle, there's rupture, it's called. Mm. And that's when everything begins to rip internally and externally. Life got very chaotic. Um, I was deliberately kind of dismantling everything that I'd known. And I, I wanted to show that structurally on the page. I think that structure is is an incredible technical tool that writers mm. have and it's often one that's kind of underutilized um and so what I did when I got really interested in structure was I, I took books that I knew worked very well for the things that I wanted to explore so I wanted to explore pace I wanted to explore how you kind of bring these breaks as well onto the page and I got um loads and loads of post-it notes and put them at the junctures so that I could physically see what was happening with structure so that I could actually see it. And I had this huge pile of books by writers that I really respect and really love. And I could suddenly see what it was they were doing with their story mechanism mm. just from looking at them from the side. Um, and that was when I knew exactly kind of where all the movable parts had to sit. And it was very chaotic for a few weeks I sent my editor I sent her a message saying uh I'm really sorry like this is this is chaos and she was like don't worry from that will come the the order the order will come from it and it did that's really was the making of the book just to kind of make sure that that structure was in place and then I could build everything around it so I know that it's gone through quite a few different kinds of drafts. Can you talk us through your very first draft, first of all, when it all, I know, pretty much poured out of you and then um, and then the kind of in-between stage before you got to that stage where you, you kind of last year kind of ripped up the structure and sort of really finalised it. So what were those stages that you went through? So I'm a big believer in planning and I think for a long time, I'm, I'm like a, well, I'm a chronic overthinker, you know that, I just think and think and think about everything. But I'm also a really slow thinker, so like I can take about six months to actually have a thought because it takes me ages to work out what the thought is. And so I was used to working in that way. I'm used to planning things and I'm a big believer in plot and, you know, like all of these the mechanisms that kind of a bit builds around but with the last days I couldn't figure it out because it was my life and it's really different to try and plot a life so I, I didn't know what to do so I just wrote it and it terrified me the idea of sitting down to write something with no plan and no structure was really scary but also the idea of writing down my life was really scary also the idea of writing was forbidden I wasn't allowed to write about the past without there being some pretty serious consequences so I was terrified so and every night when I put the kids to bed I would like type from the bedroom floor and I would write so I wrote the first draft in a matter of weeks really quickly and I've never looked at it since like I never ever went back to it but from that that's when I got the first three points 
And that's when I realized that if it was called The Last Days, it was partly about growing up with a fear of the end, but it was also everything that happened in the book had to lead to what happened with my mother and I. So I got the extra, I got other strands of the book from that early kind of just outpouring for want of a better word and I put it away and I didn't look at it I wasn't even sure if I was going to write it yeah um I wasn't convinced that I was actually going to do it put it away and then I spoke to a friend who I I kind of ran two ideas by him and he said that's the one you've got to do it so I then knew the structure So then it became a different draft. But in that draft, I found it very hard. I didn't want to use. So I wanted to show that for so long I had not inhabited myself. So when you're a witness, you're part of a collective. That's why the book, the prologue begins with we. Mm. Because that's how I used to speak. We believe this. We are Jehovah's Witnesses. It begins, it is 1982. And in the Kingdom Hall, we are Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm. And I wanted to use language to show the kind of different selves I inhabited during the different years so the early parts of the book were in second person because for a long time I felt like I was observing myself so I was watching me being a you I was not an I and then I stepped in when I left narratively I stepped into the first person and began to narrate it in first person And my agent really liked that, and I really liked that, and I felt I was doing something quite literary. Um, But publishers didn't feel that it brought in the reader enough. It it caused this kind of distance between the child narrator and the reader. And it was a bit stilting as well, because we're used to seeing a you address, but you're often used to seeing it in in, letters being written to someone else. You're not used to you as a way of writing the first person that doesn't yeah. happen that often um and so I after I sat before I signed with Ebury I had to rewrite certain parts so that um so that Robin knew that I was going to be able to hit what needed to be hit and that was a really useful exercise as well in terms of bringing the reader right in and kind of aligning them with the events that I was seeing as the narrator um, and so it went through that process and then I rewrote it and then rewrote, I don't even know how many times, but it's been through many, many um, drafts and each draft I feel got dug deeper into the story and more and more and more and into the kind of psychology of what was happening as well. It allowed me to understand the organisation better. I'm a big believer that books take a long time. Yeah. Um, I, particularly, I think, when it comes to memoir, because you've got to try and there's so much to walk around and there's so much to assimilate. There's so much to um, present. So I'm so pleased that, you know, it's, it's taken a full three and a half years of my life and it has taken those years literally taken them from me I haven't done very much in those three years other than make this book um but I think that all those processes needed to happen and then of course we had thinking of the different drafts not only did it have all its drafts but when it was in what we thought was going to be the final form it had its legal read which then meant that the book had to get significantly changed because there was a number of potentially contentious issues in the second part of the book that we obviously had to 
reshape and uh, rephrase. And I, I think that 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 was probably for me personally the most difficult stage, apart from the early drafts. Yeah, um, that was very difficult. But what it did was it it finessed the book, so it made it be a book that is completely about an organization and the people it produces and the way it controls. And so it definitely made it more elegant as a result. And it it pushed me so much as a writer because mm-hmm. ultimately we couldn't really work out how to resolve it. And then it sort of, it suddenly clicked one day when I did it. But again, that took up time. So so there's been just a lot. <laughs> Yeah. Well, let let me, I was going to ask about the legal stuff later, but let me just dive into it now since we're talking about it. I know a lot of listeners will be writing memoir and this is a really, really difficult thing when you make the decision to go ahead and publish work that is about your life. Um, A lot of difficult decisions need to be made. Um, Certainly anything that has any kind of coercive control or very powerful organizations in it. Um, It's incredibly difficult um, to be able to speak about those things freely. And and often it means making really difficult choices about what's included and what's not. Um, Did you feel, I know it was a really difficult process, the legal read, um, certainly challenging, very challenging creatively as well as emotionally. Did you feel like what kind of support did you get from the publisher? Like, can you talk the listeners through like what um, what that process felt like? And did you feel like you had their support? Absolutely. I I mean, I feel like the book is completely in the right home. I am so lucky with Avery. I've had a brilliant experience, and I felt supported throughout uh, the legal team at PRH. Are absolutely incredible and I felt supported even by that process because I knew that it was a way not just of keeping themselves safe but of keeping me safe yeah put yourself in such a vulnerable situation as a memoir writer Mm. Um, or as a non-fiction writer to be honest I think Mm. that truth telling is a really difficult thing to do and it's fraught with so many issues and I think sometimes readers don't realize that of course the writer has been through the dilemma the writer's been through all the things that they can throw at you internally and often at three in the morning so I knew that the lawyers were really hell-bent on keeping me safe I was really supported by my editor um and yeah I, I felt completely supported through the process it didn't mean that it wasn't difficult yeah but it certainly was I was given time to think I was given support um there were phone calls it was you know my editor was always there and yeah. and it was very much a back and forward which was partly what made it so difficult creatively because I wasn't ever told what to do. I was told what sections needed to be changed, but I wasn't told how they were going to be changed. So I never felt like, I know sometimes people talk about feeling that their voice has been taken from them or or these things. I never felt like that. I felt that it also reframed in my head what you're allowed to speak about with other people. and what we class as taboo as well, because I think there's still some taboos that legally you can't breach. And I, I have a funny relationship in my head with that as to whether you should be allowed to mm. or whether you shouldn't be allowed to. And it's a really difficult thing because there's things you can't say 
if you don't have any evidence. Yeah. And it can be very Even if hard. you witnesses, even if you were a witness to things happening, unless you can prove that you're a witness to things happening, you can't legally say them. Exactly. Yeah. And I think when people are in vulnerable situations, they often, they don't go to the doctor or they don't go to people who could take down written evidence yeah. and notes of that. But if you don't do it, and you can't say it later. Yeah. You can imply it. In fact, you can't even imply it, <laughs> to be honest. But anyway, well, I mean, I think that the whole uh, Johnny Depp Amber Heard um, recent trial has proven that you can't even imply anything. <laughs> uh, you, you actually, you can't. Any implication had to come out as well. So, I mean, I, mean, I do. I feel it was very, very well supported. And it's, it's made me reconsider um, what I would write in the future and it's yeah. also made me think that fiction sometimes can be a brilliant way of telling a story that clearly has absolutely nothing to do with your life <laughs> I know that disclaimer <laughs> at the front of fiction right it's very appealing um, yeah it's interesting I had quite a good experience with legal as well mine was quite a little bit legally complex as well and because a lot of the people in the book were not able to give consent and somebody else had to give consent for them to be included and things like that. Um, and I think a lot of people don't realize, I mean, our, the legal team that I had at Hachette was also amazing. Um, but what a lot of people don't realize is like you're saying, they don't tell you what to do. They just tell you what might and might not be legally a problem that you get basically a long list of all the things. <laughs> and so I had to go through that list and check off the written permission for every single mention of something that they said is a big red flag, a big red flag, big red flag, which, you know, which they just flat, all they're doing is flagging out where you're legally vulnerable to Mm -hmm. being sued um, and they're legally vulnerable to being sued. Um, And so it is quite a a full-on process. Um, But, yeah, like you, I I felt quite lucky. I felt quite well supported. But you do have to kind of go, right, okay, well, if I'm not going to do that, how am I going to do it? Exactly. Um, So this is where I think having an amazing relationship, a really good relationship with your editor is, you know, this is where it really comes in handy when you're doing nonfiction and memoir. Yeah, it really kicks. It's really important. I think also at contract stages too. Mm. So my agent is brilliant and he pointed out all the indemnity clauses in the contract so that I fully understood where the responsibility lay as well. So I think even at the early stages, it's never too early to start thinking about your legal read. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, So... Let's talk a little bit about the voice in the book because I, I was there's a really beautiful transition that happens from your early childhood through your teenage years and into your young adulthood and then and then later adulthood where you're in a different place emotionally. Um, there's a really beautiful transition in that voice of beginning and quite a childlike, not childish at all, but quite a childlike voice. And then slowly as we get to your teenage years, the language starts to change. Was that right from the beginning? Did you, I mean, I know that the tense changed um, and things and the um, narration style changed, but did, was that voice with you from the beginning or is that something that happened over and over those drafts? The voice was always there. I think that partly, so to evoke the memories I would listen to music and go into very much went into a scene and the voice just happened Mm. as I was in the scene um I love writing children I think having children really helps write children but I do love writing quite young voices I think Mm. they have just such an interesting way of looking at the world yeah 
they almost take everything on equal terms. There sort of isn't this kind of hierarchy. Yes. So if you notice these strange things. Um, and I, I love that voice. It was really good fun to do the kind of changes in modulation as mm. well as as I grew up. So, for instance, she gets quite, you know, she's, she, me, I, I was quite a, I was a really moody teenager. I was a nightmare. And um, she's, she's quite, you know, sarky. I'm just mm. a bit like, you know, pissed off, hates everyone, like most teenagers. And um, that was really good fun. So, like, I couldn't swear too early on. I start swearing later, that kind of um skepticism starts to creep in all those different things and then and I go very devout I wanted to kind of bring in a more sort of devotional voice later on and it was very important to me as well that as I got to the end after I left that the voice changed as well so that yeah. it kind of showed that the lessening of that control and also mm. the ability to be able to start to reason but I wanted as well as it gets towards the end when I go a little bit mad because I've lost my mother and I'm in this place of grief I wanted to kind of explore that sort of vaguely unhinged way of narration as well and we changed the structure to not didn't change the structure dramatically but it was actually the copy editor who suggested that we took out any chapter titles or anything just to kind of give that this very fluid thing as well so the voice was I think because it's such an internal book characters are narrated through the through my lens yeah there's no um there's very little dialogue there's not much direct speech it's an internal book which was really important as well um so it was important that the voice was captivating it was important that it was a voice that moved you through the story and that you didn't hate from the outset and I think that children's voices can be quite a good way of drawing you in as well yeah oh no that does that completely that I think that describes it so beautifully the way that your that your child voice just really draws us in and like you said it's that kind of democracy of importance that the observations, you know, from the very mundane and the tiny, you know, that, that, that kind of the focusing on the shoes and mm-hmm. um, and then and and the pool where your mother is baptised and things like that, you know, like all of these different things from the tiny to the really kind of quite life-changing, mm-hmm. ha- sort of on, on equal footing, as you say. But the other thing that was really interesting, I mean, it kind of reminded me in a way of um, um the um the memoir when did I last see your father in that like you you really there is a time in your teenage years where you really you're you're you are very vulnerable with what you went through as a teenager um and you really lay yourself bare on the page in terms of um your experimentations with with sex and drugs and ways of disassociating um because of how painful life was um and then of course like you know reading through your eating your period of time where you had really severe eating disorder and almost lost your life from it um which is an incredibly difficult thing to read but I think for me almost some of the most powerful parts of the book because I it's it's almost because you're so we're so close to you it's almost like I felt like I completely understand why you were doing it Mm. that was really important and I that's incredible to hear because I I have a big bugbear with how anorexia is written about yeah um, I think it's it's completely trivialized. We still see it as being about weight and about vanity and still 
continue to believe that it's a female issue and that it happens to overprivileged white teenagers who should just eat their dinner. And that's how you're treated when it happens to you as well. And for years, even when I was going through it, I knew I wanted to write about it and I knew I wanted to set the record straight as well. Obviously, it is only my experience, but it felt really important to do and to explain how it is this kind of metaphysical problem. It became a spiritual problem Mm. for me as well. I really was making myself into a new form. I was trying to rid myself of all the sins I'd done before. I couldn't explain that in therapy either because then I was worried that my mom would find out, you know, so I, I couldn't really get better or move away from it but it also was the best friend I ever had Mm. it gave me so much and I think when we're talking about illness and addiction we have because it was an addiction for me we have to start talking about what it gives you um because I didn't want it taken away from me either because what would I have replaced it with yeah I think that came across so clearly and I think it's so uh, it's so perfect the way you describe it as an addiction. It reads like an addiction and it reads like a tool that helped you function. You know, like it was a way that you were functioning in very, very difficult circumstances. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. I don't think we talk enough about how addiction serves a purpose in people's <laughs> lives when something is really wrong. Um, and that there is, so there's a reason and it's sort of a kind of very human thing to do in a way. Like there's sort of the, the way you describe that want that kind of need to kind of disappear and have no wants um, and how tied in that is with with your um, your experience being in that community um, it is completely understandable in the circumstances yeah I mean I, I think I say it in the book I know I've said it other places but it it kept me alive while it was killing me and it was the strangest irony to live inside was knowing that it was killing me, but also knowing that it was saving me. Mm. It was very complicated and I'd I'd love to write more about it actually because of just how how complex Mm. it was. But it I I feel really proud of those sections. I think I I was very conscious as I was writing them that I was going out on a bit of a limb because at times it it almost seems quite exciting. Um, I I didn't want it to trigger people and make people think that, you know, there was a very fine line between am I glamorising this? Mm. But I don't think I do because I then bring in how painful it was. It obviously was quite a significant chunk of my teenage years as well and it took a very long time to recover from I, I I don't use the word recover I think it, it's something that you live with yeah I was going to say it does seem like obviously you lived with it you you continue you know somebody continues to live with it for their lives but you um you lived with it quite acutely for a long time and sort of looked on the outside as though you were managing it but weren't quite managing it mm-hmm. but then you did move towards managing it yeah um yeah so it's it's sort of more it's more, um, it's, yeah, it, it's really interesting to read that process on the page, which is um, not about a before and after or a um, now it's better. And, you know, it's, yeah. it's kind of a, you move through, you move through different phases to a point where you were not unwell. Yeah. And I have different relationships with it. I always think of it as something much like drugs, you know, mm. something I used and I'm have yeah. been conscious at different stages in life that, oh, I'm, I think in my head, oh, I'm using again. 
And I yeah. realize that I'm back in the behaviors. They might not manifest themselves because I can rein it in, but you think, oh, okay, this is the point at which mm-hmm. that I have to start actually being careful. Yeah, because you can spot when your behavior is leading you down a road. Yeah. 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 So it's very interesting. And I, I think it's a fascinating thing to explore. It was very hard to explore as well on the page, though, because it's really boring. And I've just finished reading. And if we talk about books at the end, this is the book I'm talking about. But I've just finished reading Original Sins by Matt Roland Hill. And I am totally evangelical about the book. It's fantastic. It's brilliant. And he's talking about being a Christian as a child. And then he becomes a heroin addict. And it's very interesting to kind of read similar accounts I can't remember why I've gone into talking about this now because now I've just got completely sidetracked by his <laughs> but yes it's very interesting to look at what an addiction can give you and how you move beyond it and and how religion influences it as well and is religion its own addiction <laughs> so, I mean I I think personally that um quite any kind of extremism whether it's religious or political or it is, it's feeding that. It's feeding that same part that perhaps an eating disorder is feeding, that that alcoholism is feeding. It's um it's a kind of way of coping with the world. You know, I think so. Being told what to do by somebody else is a way of coping with life. Yeah, you know. Yeah, that's what I was going to say actually, was my the eating disorder also coincided with the fact that I knew that if I carried on at school, if I carried on being ambitious if I carried on wanting things basically Mm. those things would take me away from what I called the truth it would take me away from the religion whereas the eating disorder kept me in it so presented itself as keeping me safe and delayed me having to face the inevitable and it also gave me something else to put my faith in so instead at the meetings instead of thinking about God and all the things from the platform I just sat thinking about food and calories and exercise and everything else so it replaced something and it really only began to properly resolve when I left so I knew that there was a distinct comorbidity Mm. between the two as well Um, and I always found that really really fascinating but it was definitely a way of of keeping me within the religion too yeah 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 that's what I was going to say in relation to Matt's book was that essentially it's hard to write an eating disorder on the page because it makes you so ill that eventually you're doing nothing at all so I spent I spent months in bed fixating on food and I didn't listen to music I didn't read I didn't watch tv I did nothing I couldn't move I was too ill and this happens in Matt's book as well, is his heroin addiction becomes really dull. It's really, really awful. These things strip you off all the things that, it, it, you know, of all. it's very exciting initially and you get such a high. I was so high from not eating. Mm. But then it just completely decimates you. And yeah. I think that that presents a technical challenge for a writer as to how do you write about something? that's not very interesting as well. <laughs> um, well, you definitely manage it. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, I, I think they were my favourite parts of the book, actually. I thought they were really, really beautiful. And I'm, um, you know, I'm sure for people who have experienced it, there will be, some of it will be challenging to read, but also some of it will probably be a relief to read, mm. you know, um, to just to read someone else's experience 
and how it did in some ways keep you alive as it was killing you, as we say. Yeah. Yeah. I've had a lot of messages from people with eating disorders or people who've experienced them who've said that it's the first time they felt represented on the page mm. as well. It's, <clears throat> it's interesting because um, one of the other aspects of the book that I think is really interesting and that so many people will relate to that has nothing to do with religion, it's, it's sort of happens because of your religion but it's not really to do with religion itself this idea of splitting yourself into and your identity kind of coming into different parts and I think the thing that was really interesting to me was how as a child and teenager um, as we often don't understand we we think you you thought you were alone with that you thought you were probably the only one that experienced that um, two selves that um, that then you realize you know later in your 20s when you met other witnesses in different parts like when you went to the city and you started watching and seeing that people had two faces essentially, and you know, that they were presenting one face at meetings and another face, um, not entirely different, but like, but they had different sort of compartmentalized <laughs> parts of their lives. And you started to recognize that maybe other people felt that way too. I think, you know, obviously your, your situation and growing up as a witness is quite extreme, but I think so many people will relate to that aspect, that duality as well. Yeah, I think so. I obviously did think that that was just something that I had to deal with. Mm. I think that's how you feel when you're young. Yeah. That you think nobody finds life as difficult as you. No one hates their parents as much as you do. No one's been as miserable as you are. If we were so myopic as teenagers, so selfish mm. as well, just not really realising that kind of shared experience. But yeah, I think that we all split ourselves into different parts and sometimes it gets worse maybe as we get older as well because you have responsibilities and things that you actually have to do but you still have this kind of inner self as well that maybe Mm. you've not shown to the world or you've not been confident enough to let out I know that writing the book really revealed that to me as well it sort of exposed the way that that wasn't something that I'd really dealt with it wasn't something that I'd really changed either um which which shows you know you're never the same person at the end of writing a book and Mm. you're certainly not the same person by the time it comes to publishing the book either so a book has is a really hard master I think it has its own effects yeah no I completely agree with that Mm. and to the point now where I I did a talk the other day where I did some readings from Tender and it's been two years now since it was published and I hadn't done a talk for a little while, maybe a couple of months or something. And um, it's, I'm reading what I wrote with feels like from another time mm. and not in a good way or a bad way, just from another point of view. I'm like, oh, wow, I wrote that at some point. They were my words. And it's not that I don't agree with them or they feel that I, they don't feel like my words anymore, but I just, there's a, um, there's a sort of separation. I feel like a, a different, the process of publishing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the conversations that came out of it, it makes it feel, it changes you, definitely. Yeah, because yeah, a book is is obviously static. I mean, I think books are alive as well in a certain way, but it, it's it's a printy page and everything is there, whereas you your life continues beyond. Yeah, yes, of course. Think, yeah. You know, kind of reconfigure how you felt about something in relation to other things that happen after the book as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that um, that for people who don't know you personally, you are still that person who wrote those words. Um, but, you know, I know for me, the person who wrote Tender was 2019, Penny. And, <laughs> and nobody's the same now. Nobody's the all, same. We're all post-pandemic, hardened, cynical <laughs> And so 
on that publishing front, um, obviously you're right in the thick of it at the moment. There's still much more to come in terms of publishing. This is not the first time you've written about being an ex-witness, but this is the first, but this is obviously a book and a whole and a very kind of um, a lot of you in it. Mm. And so how are you feeling at this stage about um, about having it out there? <laughs> right. So I am super superstitious. So I'm not going to say, oh, I'm feeling great and the response has been brilliant and people have been really supportive because you never know what's going to come. Oh, next. well, you could say so far. And I'm going to <laughs> totally caveat it with so far. So I had a big interview in First Extract in the Sunday Times. And I spent two weeks before that walking far too much and sleeping far too little. I was really, really anxious about it. And I had just messages of support from people all over the world who've had similar experiences, who've encountered similar things. And I think that this stage is making some of the much more difficult stages when writing it had this really visceral effect on me. It made me feel quite ill. It it feels like not a reward because I'm not like compiling a star chart, but it does feel like, it feels like, really it feels like the right thing to have done to yeah. have exposed myself in this way um and you never know when you write a memoir because it is an exposure and you never know if anyone would actually be interested in in what's happened um so yeah it's so far I feel like I am feel super supported again by my publisher I have a brilliant publicist who is always there um and yeah I think that it's it's a story that needed to be told and it's very obvious that it needed to be told by the initial response yeah oh well gosh it's been so nice to finally be able to have an open conversation about this on the podcast I know. it's so strange to like have such a significant like amount of time and not actually be able to say well, you know there's this in it and there's that and I think because yeah. it just sounds like it's about growing up as a Jehovah's Witness and that's sort of all it sounds like but it's about so much and it, it is, is really about freedom and about the choices we make and learning to kind of become a woman on your own terms. So, And the challenges of yeah. having freedom, you know, how hard yeah. freedom is as opposed to being controlled. Yeah, and freedom is really difficult. I think we have this idea of like a very binary attitude towards control and freedom. So control is the bad thing and freedom is the good thing. And at times it's so tempting to go back to the safety of control mm. and that, you know, I grew up thinking I was right and elect and chosen until I was nearly 30. And it was much easier to think that. It's much more difficult to be cut adrift and, you know, and to not know what you believe. That's actually quite a tricky space. I mean, I have to say reading it, I can see why people become witnesses. Mm -hmm. I can, because I can see when life is really hard and, and maybe it would just be nice to be told what to think and told what to believe and told everything is going to be fine no matter what happens, because you're chosen. You know, I can see the appeal. I can. Mm-hmm. Not that I want it, but I can no. see why people, <laughs> not that I want it. <laughs> there is a certain soothing aspect. It's, I suppose it's a weirdly a little bit like I was talking about anorexia is there's a really distinct appeal. Um, it kills you. It, it kills your spirit. But at the same time, yeah, we all get It takes up. care of you somehow in a weird yeah. kind of way. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Well, Ali. I've read 
lots of chunks of it over the last couple of years, but it was so amazing to be able to read all of it in <laughs> one go in yeah. that form. It was so exciting. Um, congratulations. It's just beautiful. It's absolutely Thank beautiful. You. Thank you. Um, so what have you been reading? Have you had time to even read lately? Um, yeah, I've, I've actually been finding like sitting and reading really difficult. I've been reading a lot of essays and kind of short bursts, but yeah, I did read Matt Roland Hill's Original Sins and that's the best book I've read this year. It's the best mm. book I've read for a very long time. And I um, am intensely, intensely annoyed about how brilliant a memoir about growing up as a Christian and later suffering addiction can be. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's really nailed it. And um, yeah, if you buy two books this year, buy his and mine. You definitely <laughs> do. I think they kind of sit side by side, but it's about, so Matt's father was a Methodist minister and he grew up in in quite a complicated family in Wales and he started having doubts when he was a teenager which again he tried to push away and then he um when he left he became a heroin addict very quickly and for many years really struggled with addiction and it's a beautiful beautiful book about trying to believe and how hard it can be to believe but how how appealing belief is as well it's just it's absolutely gorgeous it just hit me on so many different levels I mean the writing is superb he is a brilliant writer it's out today actually on Chateau and Windus and he's magnificent I think that we're going to hear a lot more this is the beginning I hope of a very exciting career but yeah I would thoroughly recommend it how about you what have you been reading well I was on a ban for quite a long time I didn't read for for a couple of months um I think it was a couple of months not really I had to do some reading for research um but essentially I tried not to read for a couple of months it was actually (laughs) really good I know it sounds mental but I mean, the amount of reading I did in the past year because of the masters and because of the podcast and for my own reading, my God, I feel like my brain. And also that's the thing with doing a masters, you're critiquing so many people's words. Mm -hmm. So I had so many stories in my head. It was just insane. So it was really good to take a break um, because I had a a big deadline to meet. Um, So that was great. But so since then I have read, um, which one should I mention? uh, Idol by Louise O'Neill and I love Louise O'Neill she's an Irish writer who's just I just adore her um, Idol is fascinating um, it's such an interesting look at the way we kind of put influence influences up on a pedestal and the power they have um, it's fascinating and very kind of like uh, I can't put it down I really loved it. I really love the way that Louise sees the world and her view on the world. I think she's just a completely fascinating writer. Um, but also I, I got The Year of Miracles by Ella Risebridger, who is a food writer who um, it's, it's, it's just beautiful. Her first book, Midnight Chicken, is similarly structured. It's a memoir slash recipe book. Um, and I genuinely mean that it is like a proper recipe book, but it is also a memoir. It's not a memoir with a few recipes thrown in and it's not a recipe book with a few anecdotes thrown in. It is proper hybrid in the most stunning way. Um, It's a 
This one is about her experience of um, of grief after she lost her boyfriend to cancer. Um, she's only in her late 20s when it happens. Mm. And it's about a year that she spends, she moves in with one of her close friends um, and it then happens to coincide with lockdown as well, although that's not a huge part of it. But um, it's, it's really about her cooking her way through grief. Mm. Um, and it's just so incredible. She's the most beautiful writer and the recipes are great. Um, so amazing. I would highly recommend that. Yeah, I really love, beautiful. like, when I'm stressed, I read recipe books. I love reading, like, Nigel Slater can, like, write a recipe, like, no oh, one's on yeah. I love recipe books, and I find them really, really soothing. I, I could talk about recipe books for, like, hours I want. Um, so I have to get that. Oh, yeah, but she's, she's such a beautiful writer. I, I, yeah, you'll absolutely love it. Mm, what a clever concept. Oh, it's been so lovely to have an episode with you again. Um, we'll have to do more in the future. Yeah, we will. The year. Yes, when I um, touch the ground. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations again. Thank and you. And the links will be in the show notes. Everyone go buy it. It is absolutely beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to Not Too Busy to Write with Ali Miller and Penny Windsor. You can buy all the books recommended on the podcast at uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash not too busy to write where a portion of each sale goes to support independent bookshops around the country if you've enjoyed this episode don't forget to subscribe or follow and please leave a review it really helps others to find the podcast